0: No! Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast, New Covenant Theology. That is what I uh, would like to discuss today. And the reason I would like to discuss it today is because I've been getting some recent like, uh, you know, there's been some recent uh, interest taken in a covenant theology video that I did a long time ago, a couple years ago, actually three years ago, I think this month uh, with Dustin Seegers. It was uh, live streamed on my channel uh, back in 2018 and uh, I've been getting some recent interest, uh, some comments, uh, usually comments at my expense, but that's okay because Dustin is a great guy and articulated his position very well. And I think that I could have done done many, many things better than I did in terms of articulation. Now, uh, first, I guess we should just ask the question, well, what is New Covenant Theology? It's kind of, um, it's not the greatest moniker in the world because uh obviously we're all new covenant theologians to the extent that we believe we live under or in the new covenant in Christ um and uh, and so in that sense we all believe in new covenant theology in that that broadest sense possible but new covenant theology refers to a particular stripe uh a uh, and it's a quite broad stripe actually these days um of of those who um Want to emphasize the newness of the new covenant, and that's actually a good thing. Um, in fact, Baptists for a very long time have always been trying to emphasize the newness of the new covenant. What is new about the new covenant, and the substantial difference of the new covenant from that of the old, uh, which is what you know, Presbyterians, Reformed, Paedo, Reformed, baptists refuse to to see, is that there is a a substantial distinction between uh, the new and old covenants—they're not just two distinct administrations of the same substantial covenant. So, there there is to their credit that sentiment and that motivation behind their position. I think what happens though is that is that they go a little too far in in wanting to to kind of uh, do away with with uh, the continuity between old and and new covenants altogether. Now, I would say that the continuity between Old and New Covenants uh, really uh, depends upon things that existed, slash were in force, slash were revealed um, prior to and under the Old Covenant, but weren't necessarily uh, linked to the Old Covenant. Um, and they may have been appropriated to within the Old Covenant. So, for example, the moral law is obviously part of the Old Covenant, but uh, the moral law also exists independently of the Old Covenant. I think we see that, you know, if we go back to just Genesis alone, I think we see a great deal of the the moral law or the Decalogue uh, revealed and assumed in texts way prior, chronologically prior to the the making of the Sinai Covenant in, in Exodus 20, and then uh, the secondary revelation of it in Deuteronomy 5, or the reestablishment of it there. And so, this is a complicated issue. This is a this is a you know, especially when you when you consider the fact that New Covenant theology is not a monolith. Uh, it started out more unified than it is today, and of course, that's pretty much every position. It begins as kind of a monolith in some sense, and then. As it develops, and as theologians kind of, you know, think about it more, write about it more, you know, some some divergences begin to appear. Uh, there are differences between Schreiner and Wellem and you know some others, uh, Owen Strayan, and 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 others. So um, there are those who posit a covenant of creation in the Garden of Eden, who are also New Covenant theologians like Gentry and Wellem. Uh, but there are those like Dustin Seegers, who I who I talked with on my channel uh those years back, who denies a covenant in the Garden of Eden. So but both of those groups of people, I mean Willem and then and then and then uh, Seegers and and those he would he would closely identify with are are both said to be New Covenant theologians, or New Covenant theology groups uh, who espouse New Covenant theology. So there is uh, a great deal, I think, of talking past one another, and I think that happened to, an, to a degree in our conversation. Unfortunately, you know, just with the happenings of life, I never got a chance to to reconnect with, with Dustin and, and, and have part two. It was part one, New Covenant Theology, and then never got into really part two, and, and um, uh, just so many things that changed uh, in good ways over these last uh, three years. Uh, just wasn't able to to make that happen. So uh, here we are, and I would like to talk about New Covenant theology. So one of the things we talked about on on the video, and you can go back and look at that. I'll link it in the show notes underneath this video. Um, is that one of the first things that we that we really engaged with was the idea of the covenant of works in the garden, and Dustin's particular branch of New Covenant theology you know, um, denies a covenant of works. I've been encouraged to see that in some corners of covenant theology, like with Gentry and Wellam, for example, there is, excuse me, there is a covenant affirmed in the garden. They do see a covenant affirmed, uh, or made or established in the garden of Eden. And you can read more about that in kingdom through covenant, which is their massive work on, um, on their, on their position. It's a biblical theology of sorts. And um, and they talk a, a great deal about that covenant of creation, and and that's a that's a positive development I think in, in new covenant theology circles. Dustin's branch denies the covenant in the garden, and I think the reason that that branch denies a covenant of garden in the a covenant of creation or a covenant of works in the garden is because of a a kind of implicit biblicism in terms of hermeneutical methodology. Right. So, you know, he said in our video, one of the things he said in our video, and by the way, one of the most gracious guys I've ever interacted with online. And so uh, and and I and I appreciated that very much. Um, But one of these things, you know, one of the things that he, he kept saying about. About the covenant of creation is, you know, I don't want to go beyond what's written. I don't want to go beyond what's written. Prior to getting to that point, when he was saying that about the covenant of works in the garden, he he did. He did establish kind of a criteria of sorts for you know using extra biblical language. You know the Trinity, you know, is obviously taught in the Scripture, um, and the, even though the term Trinity is an extra biblical term that we use, you know, and so he's 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 okay with granting the term Trinity, even though it's extra biblical, to describe a biblical concept. But when it comes to the covenant of works in the Garden. He denies that there is a covenant there whatsoever. My response to him was, "There are the rudiments of a covenant there. The ingredients of a covenant are all there." And he said, "Well, you know, there is a, a a commandment and a promise. That's all I see." Well, if you look at Genesis one and two, and if you look at God's interaction with with Adam, there is indeed a covenant and a promise. But that promise is conditioned. That promise is conditioned upon Adam's continued obedience. And then, in addition to the promise, there's actually a threat issued, uh, a, a curse, namely death, that is there uh, in the event of Adam's disobedience. So, you actually have three elements. It's not just a commandment and a promise, it's a commandment and a promise for obedience, uh, and then curse, uh, a curse of death for disobedience, right? So, there are three things a commandment, a promise, and a threat, all right? Those are all things that are present in every conditional covenant throughout the Old Old Testament, okay? So if you're just looking at, at what you need for a covenant to be present, those three ingredients would be it. Um, and so, you know, the, again, and, and it's still unilateral in the sense that God, you know, imposed it upon Adam, you know, and one of the things that doesn't said he has problems with is kind of the uh, speculative uh, eschatology of Adam that exists in many authors, Meredith Klein, um, you know, uh, maybe G.K. Beale and some others. Um, and and he's he he expressed some disagreement with some of the models of Adam's proposed eschatology if he would have kept God's law, right? If he would not have sinned, if he would have. If he would have continued on, what would have that looked like? And um, and that's okay. You can you can believe in a covenant of works in the garden and disagree with those various models of Adam's eschatology. And I've even heard people who affirm a covenant of works in the garden who've just chosen to remain totally agnostic as to Adam's speculative eschatology which i think is you know is i i don't think we should do that but there are some who do it yet maintain a covenant of works so there's nothing you know if, if if you disagree with one of the many models put forth for what would have happened to adam if he would have obeyed you know that in no way shape or form militates against just the basic affirmation of a covenant of works in the garden of eden um so I, I didn't think that that obviously th- that that reasoning for denying a covenant of works was sufficient. The concept of a covenant is there. It's called a covenant of works because it's a condition. It's a covenant conditioned upon Adam's obedience. Uh, the lack thereof issues in a curse, namely death, which we see actually happen in Genesis three, um, and um, and the, so the concept is there. Uh, and then you know that just the reason that he gave really for ultimately denying a covenant of works is uh, not only does he not see the substance of a covenant there or the principle of covenant of a covenant there, but he disagrees with some of the proposed eschatologies of Adam, which is you know that does nothing to say you know that does nothing to actually defeat the idea of a covenant of works in in the garden and and that's a that's quite an eclectic discussion uh that's not a discussion that that there is a whole lot of agreement on as far as, you know, what people think would have happened to Adam. Um, I, I tend toward GK Beale. you know, Adam was to go out and expand this garden all over the, the, the earth and, uh, was to take dominion. I think that's pretty clear in the text. Um, and, uh, but there, there are all sorts of opinions as to how that plays out in, in particular. Uh, but I would recommend Beale as a resource on that. His, his, um, uh, his um, uh, biblical theology, New Testament biblical theology, is great on that point. He talks at length about it. Um, the other thing we talked about in the video, and this is where I think there was a, a great amount of talking past one another, is obviously the law, uh, the place of the law. Now, at the outset, what I should have done in the conversation is I should have noted that at the at the outset, I should have noted that. The law is used. The term "nomos" in the New Testament is used um, equivocally. Uh, that means that you know the term "law" in one place may refer to you know one aspect of of the law, and in another place in the New Testament may refer to maybe perhaps a more broad aspect of the law. Sometimes the law refers to the whole Old Testament. Sometimes it only refers to The Decalogue. One of the examples that Dustin brought up was First Corinthians nine, and you know Paul saying that he wasn't, you know, he he would he would be as those who were under the law, so that he could relate to those under the law. Um, And then he, for those who were not under the law, he would be as one who was not under the law. Uh, And then he qualifies, and it's put in brackets or it's put in parentheses in the in the text, usually that uh, he was not without law to God, right, or without the law of Christ. He was still obligated to Christ. He was still obligated to God. And so there's an instance there where the law actually in one brief passage is used equivocally, okay, Um, and Paul has to make a qualification um, given, you know, he's using the law, the term nomos in, in two distinct ways there. So, but that happens all throughout the New Testament. And so, what I should have done is I should have noted that when we say, you know, the law or that the law still applies to the Christian or that the Christian is still obligated to keep the law, we are not saying that the Christian is under the law in the most technical sense of that term, because usually the phrase under the law refers to people who were born, raised and in and subject to the old covenant. Well... As those who are in Christ, we believe that the old covenant, in accord with Hebrews 8, verse 6 and 13, has been done away with. It's been abrogated. So, in that technical sense, we're not under the law. That describes a particular relationship to God's law, not only the moral law, but the rest of the law, the civil and what we would call the civil and ceremonial commandments as well. That describes a particular relationship that we as Christians are not under. Currently experiencing, okay, uh, and one that has has really sailed away with the abrogation of the, of the of the old covenant and the establishment of the new. So we're not under the law; we're under grace in Christ. However, the law, in terms of teaching us what liberty actually looks like, we have to remember that the old man is still, in some sense, present, and that we need to be taught what liberty is is still God's law. Uh, and I would say that the clearest expression or the clearest and most perfect example of liberty is Christ's obedience to that moral law, okay? And so, you know, Peter calls Christ our example. You know, we're to walk in his footsteps. We're to we're to follow him quite literally to follow him to be his disciples. And um and so it the law doesn't go away in principle, right? As we, you know, the relationship to the law under the old covenant has gone away, but here's the thing. Those 10 commandments, all of them existed independently of the old covenant. And I noted this in our conversation and I and I probably should have been clearer in terms of how I presented it, but all of the laws including the Sabbath, which is one that New Covenant theologians have a problem with. All of the laws, I mean, 1 through 10, I'm talking about the Decalogue, the 10 words, all of them preceded the Old Covenant. And so there is no reason to think that they wouldn't proceed the Old Covenant as well. Um, And then when you look at Christ's manner of life and his example and his perfect law-keeping, Well, you know, we would end up following all 10 of those commandments if we followed Christ, right? But the relationship to that moral law has changed. No longer is it a minister of death. No longer is it condemnatory, right? No longer are we under it, right? And under it refers to the obligation to keep the letter of the law upon pain of death or the violation being pain of death you know anyone who disobeys or rejects the law of moses dies upon to you know the witness of two or three persons you know we see that in hebrews as well so we're not under the the moral law in that sense anymore the moral law and it no longer stands as our as our condemning judge because we're in christ christ has kept it perfectly for us and we have his righteousness imputed to us you know we've been justified so what does the law do for us now? Well, it's didactic, we would say. That's the use of the law for the Christian. It's didactic. And now, where is the primary place we would go to see that law actually taught? Well, it would be Christ Jesus. You know, we we read it in Moses, but actually the Ten Commandments, as they exist under Moses and in Moses is not the predominant place we would go to see how those laws are kept or what those laws even are. We would actually go to Christ, who Hebrews 1 says is the clearest revelation. He is God speaking in Son, right? He is the express image of the Father. He is the perfect exemplar of the law, okay? So we, I would agree with Dustin that and, and many new covenant theologians that, you know, in that sense, it is the law of Christ. We look to Christ to know how to live as those who've been liberated from sin, death, and the devil, and who now in an inaugural sense exist and live in a new creation, okay? So, um, and those were all things, everything that I just said was, were things that I wish I could go back and say in that conversation, things that... That would I I think move the conversation forward a lot more sufficiently, and would have qualified my own thought uh, more clearly. And instead, I I really just kind of failed to bring some of those things out. Um, now, I would say that with regard to to New Covenant theology and the Sabbath, that's kind of a bigger issue. But I think that if you if you go back to the very uh, kind of the genus of our religion, going back to The book of Genesis, right? Uh, And you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and you see God establish a pattern for creational life that includes a Sabbath rest on an actual day. I don't think you can get away from there being a Sabbath principle which we live out and follow according to that pattern, okay? Because it's a creational ordinance. It's like marriage in that regard. It doesn't go away just because the covenants have changed. Indeed, when God set that pattern, the old covenant wasn't even in existence. And when you get to the old covenant, you look at Exodus 20, the commandment is to remember that which had already been established. Remember the Sabbath. And we see in Exodus 16, which is chronologically prior to the establishment of Sinai or the Sinai Covenant, you see the Sabbath being assumed. In Exodus 16. And so I would just say that just because the covenant changes, while the positive aspects of the Sabbath law may change because those are positive laws that are put on top and revealed beyond just the natural rest principle, those might change with the with the transition in covenant. But uh, the, the principle itself, namely the baseline fourth commandment, that there is to be a day of rest doesn't go away. And I've always had a problem with saying, you know, that the fourth commandment is is abrogated unqualifiedly. So, and 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 New Covenant theologians, I don't even think are really convictionally convinced that that's the case because they'll say that and then they'll say that we have the ultimate Sabbath which is Christ. Which to me would seem that it doesn't even that doesn't even, you know, if you if you thought that the Sabbath commandment was altogether abrogated, well, then you would you would have to say, well, there is no Sabbath, but they'll turn around and they'll say, no, there is a Sabbath. It's a better Sabbath. It's 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 a Sabbath in Christ. Well, that doesn't mean. Well, then the, the then the Sabbath commandment's not abrogated. It's just changed. It's been changed with regard to uh, the accidents of it. Perhaps you could say it's been changed. You know, through the uh, transition of covenant, the abrogation of the old and the establishment of the new. And when you look at Hebrews there's still an obligation for us to enter the rest there's a commandment in Hebrews 4 to enter the rest now we're going to disagree as to what that rest is especially when you're looking at Hebrews like 49 sorry especially when you're looking at Hebrews 49 we're going to disagree with what that what that rest is but the fact of the matter is is they still believe there is a sabbath rest and you can't deny the wording of Hebrews 4 that we must be diligent to enter that rest, that there is a commandment there, that there's an obligation there for us to enter that rest, right? So I don't even think it's, it it doesn't even fit with their own theology to suggest that, you know, the fourth commandment is altogether abrogated under the new covenant. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll say, well, there's a republication of all nine, uh, of the nine nine commandments in the Decalogue in the New Testament, uh, but the fourth one is totally abrogated. It's gone. Well, that that's not even true really when you consider their own theology. They're keeping a version of the Sabbath commandment. They're saying that there is a version of the Sabbath commandment republished in the new covenant. Um, it's just obviously different given the uh, the fulfillment of it in Christ Jesus. Now, we would disagree on some particulars. We would disagree on the accidents of the Sabbath. We would disagree that there's an actual... You know, I would say that there's a sign of the ultimate Sabbath rest. We would all grant that the ultimate Sabbath rest is in Christ and eternity. And it's linked with the the new heavens and the new earth and the consummation of it. And that's the ultimate rest that, that we look forward to and in some sense participate in now. But there's a sign of that rest that we get to enjoy today. Well, oftentimes when we join together, you know, in Lord's, Lord's Day worship, we say that this is a picture of heaven. Right? This is a sign of heaven, or it's a symbol of heaven. It's a, it's a foretaste of heaven. Well, heaven just is our rest, right? We look forward to that ultimate rest. That's a rest that's coming, and you see that in the general flow of Hebrews. You know, In chapter 4, it's largely introduced, but you get to chapter 12, and it's like, you have come to these things. You have come to the general assembly, the festal gathering, the church of the living God, the innumerable company of saints and angels, and all of that you've come to that through faith faith is defined and 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 construed in the chapter before chapter 12 chapter 11 but the the fact of the matter is is that heaven actually is the eschatological rest of god that that we look toward that we are to enter and we enter only in christ heaven is the land right and we look to the land in christ and we are going to enter the land consummately in christ and so uh, there's a sign of that now that we get to participate in, uh, a pledge of that ultimate reality that is going to come to us in the future. There's a pledge of that, and that exists in an actual day of observation where we see a slice of heaven. Nobody would deny, I don't think Dustin would deny, I don't think you know Gentry and Wellam or Shrine or any of those guys would deny that the gathering of the local church is a picture of heaven. If you say that it's a picture of heaven, well then you're just... A millimeter away from saying, "Well, it's a pledge of heaven." If you say it's a pledge of heaven, it's a pledge of our rest. It's a pledge of our consummate rest. Um, it's a sign of our consummate rest, and that's that's what the Sabbath day, the particular day, is. It looks forward to something other and greater than itself. Um, but I don't I don't believe that it's abrogated. And even when you bring it back to the principal agreement, you know, be, be between us, you know, like myself and Dustin principle of of agreement would be that our Sabbath ultimately is in Christ. And so you know putting that together with Hebrews four, that there is definitely a an obligation to enter that rest, then, you know, uh the Sabbath commandment's not gone by any means under the new covenant. I don't think it's 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 good or proper to say so. So I hope this was helpful, guys. Um I uh uh, you know, I will put, again, I'll put the link to that show in the show notes below here. Um, so you can watch that and then maybe you can come over and watch this one as well, uh, once more so that you can see the two put together. And hopefully I clarified some things that were lacking in that, in that episode on my side. Um, as always, please give me a thumbs up. Give me a thumbs up. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, if it was helpful to you, Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Really guys, please subscribe. Just click the red button. It's super, super easy. And the bell for continued notifications. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day.